The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture is Psalm 49. Hear this, all people. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both, ho and, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they're appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praised when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see uh, all of you this morning. Um, summertime. It's one of my favorite times of the year, especially uh, growing up in northwest Washington. One of my favorite things that we would do as a family is not fairly often. We'd go down to Seattle. We were about two hours north of Seattle and go down and watch the Seattle Mariners. I'm a diehard Mariners fan, for better or for worse, and so we're just stuck in perpetual mediocrity as a Mariner fan, kind of like Nebraska. So we have that, <laughs> we have that in common. Um, but as, as a diehard Mariner fan, one of the fun things to do is in the summertime is go down to, at the time it was called Safeco Field, and just watch a Mariner game in person. And it's amazing because the sun's out, it's low 70s, you're kind of by the ocean, you see the Cascade Mountains off in the distance, and there's really nothing better as far as an environment to see a live baseball game. And maybe you kind of caught this this past week, because if you're a baseball fan at all, the All-Star Game was actually held in Seattle, the All-Star Game in the Home Run Derby. And it was a beautiful you know, time, the scenery, all that was great. What most people, though, don't realize is that 
that kind of scenery of the sun, open roof, all that, that's actually pretty rare in Seattle. Most of the time growing up when we'd go down to Seattle to watch a baseball game is that Safeco Field has this, it's kind of like something out of Star Wars, this like slow retractable roof that just ominously like crawls over you because it rains so much in Seattle. And it's great because you can still go to a baseball game. There's never a rain delay. And what happens is that you're in, you know, the middle of the baseball game and, you know, a few hours go by and you completely forget what life is like outside of the stadium. I mean, the roof covers you, protects you from the rain, and you have no awareness of what's going on. The reason I tell you that is because the philosopher Charles Taylor uses a very similar analogy to depict two ways of being or living in the world. One way he calls the imminent frame, where essentially it's like living in sort of a stadium with a closed roof over your head with no sense of what's happening around, in particular, no sense of the transcendent. No sense that there is a God who loves and cares for his people, a love who loves and cares for this world. This closed roof mentality he calls the imminent frame. And then there's this other way of being that's this open roof that's aware and recognizes and then receives the fact that there is a God who calls us to live a certain way, who calls us to live life that is truly life. And that's why, friends, I think we really need to pay attention to what Psalm 49 has to say to us this morning. Because Psalm 49 is going to essentially compare and contrast two ways of living. One way of living that essentially just kind of crams all meaning and significance into the here and now. Through abundance, through possessions, through wealth, through status. It's that closed roof, imminent frame mentality. And on the other hand, there's a way of being that doesn't necessarily reject wealth and possessions. They're not necessarily evil, but is more open to the things of God and recognizes there's life that is truly life that's more than just the here and now. So if you're new with us today, we've been going through the Psalms. Every summer we do this. We take, you know, a month or two or three to kind of work through the Psalms, picking up where we left off from the previous year. And today, again, we find ourselves in Psalm 49. But before we kind of dive into Psalm 49, I want to catch us up very briefly to where we've been, because actually it's really important to understand the Psalms that come before to help us understand what Psalm 49 is saying. See, if you notice in your Bible at the top before verse one, there's a little heading that says that this Psalm was written by or ascribed to the sons of Korah. Now, if you kind of keep flipping back, all of the psalms that we've looked at so far this summer have all been psalms from the sons of Korah. And this gets at to this really important thing because sometimes we think of the book of Psalms as sort of just this random collection of songs, poems, praise, hymns, whatnot, and whatnot that are kind of just randomly put together. The biblical scholar John Salhammer would often say that structure determines meaning. And what he meant by that is that often the structure of a book or the structure of a passage, or in this particular case, the structure of a certain section of a book, helps determine the meaning of what we're studying, or in this case, looking at this morning. And so thinking about what's come before, back to Psalm 43, starts with this individual lament, this plea, this cry for God to send light and truth. And that individual lament grows to this collective corporate lament in 44. Awake, O Lord, arouse yourself. Come to our aid. Why do you sleep? And these laments 
enter, if you will, into the presence of God and, and realize that God is this king, Psalm 45, who's full of love and authority. And Psalm 46 kind of goes even further to say God is this fortress, this stronghold. Be still, my soul, Psalm 46. And then from there, as we kind of continue on with the sons of Korah, 47 just orients our praise and our attention to God being king over all the universe. And last week, Travis Barrett did a phenomenal job showing us how Psalm 48 reminds us of the hope that we have in who God is and that new heavenly city, that new Jerusalem. So that orientation of taking us from lament and sorrow to praise and to our focus on who God is and what he's done and the hope that we have in him leads us then to Psalm 49. Because Psalm 49 is a bit different. Psalm 49 is essentially the risk. In light of everything that's happened before, Psalm 49 is an invitation to respond to the God who is king over all the earth, to the God who is full of love and authority, to the God who is a mighty fortress. How then are we to live in this world in light of what's come before? That's the, essentially the question before us. Or to put it another way, here's the question that I want us to ponder as we look at Psalm 49. Whose version of the good life are you trusting? There's a version of the good life that essentially closes off all reality of the transcendent and just tries to cram all meaning and significance into the here and now. And there's a version of the good life that responds to the goodness of God and is open to the things of God and finds meaning and significance in him. James K.A. Smith kind of summarizes this idea when he says this, it's precisely when your ultimate conviction is that there is no eternal that you're most prone to absolutize the temporal. And this is kind of the task before us this morning to look at Psalm 49. I just want to take us through it kind of line by line and unpack this idea and ask this question, whose version of the good life are you trusting? So verse 1, Psalm 49 says this, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear to all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. Notice verses one and two kind of orient us to who the audience is of this psalm. This psalm is not just for the people of God. Notice the audience is for all peoples, rich and poor, low and high. So for you in this room, whether you're a Christian or not, the wisdom that this psalm has on offer is an invitation to every single person here this morning. Whose version of the good life, then, are you trusting? And notice again that this is a wisdom psalm. It's like in response to all that we've read and sung before, if you're looking at the psalms, the sons of Korah, how then are we to live? What's the wisdom that's on offer here? Verse 4, I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. I love verse 4 for this reason because it reminds us that while we're not going to sing the psalm, this psalm this morning, that originally this was, by indication of verse 4, meant to be sung. And that there's this element, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're kind of stuck or in a rut or experiencing a difficult time and just have questions or whatever the case might be, that how helpful it is in those moments to turn your attention back to the Lord, specifically 
through song and through worship. And that does something to us. That can free us from the tyranny of whatever that, that issue or that problem might be, or at least can help us in that regard. I'm reminded of what Sam Storms talks about in his book on spiritual warfare, about how, how important it is to worship, especially through song, how that can free us from just the tyranny of whatever might be holding us back in the here, in the here and now. He specifically talks about that story in Samuel where David would play his musical instruments in the presence of Saul. And when David would play, when David would sing, when David would worship, that would free Saul from that evil spirit. And I can't help but wonder for us this morning that whether, whatever difficulty we might be, be facing, how important it is to continually come before the, before the Lord specifically through songs of worship, to set us free from the bondage that often easily ensnares us of having to cram all meaning and significance into just the here and now. That subtle grip, that subtle temptation that easily can overcome us where we just want to have all purpose and validation and everything, close the roof off to God and say, this is it. How might worship free us from that this morning? Verse 5 continues, though, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. And he should live on forever and never see the pit. See, the, the sons of Korah, the psalmists of Psalm 49, is inviting us to live this life that doesn't succumb to the fear of just always wanting to have more, of always wanting to live life where it's just gaining more possessions, gaining more abundance, gaining more whatever the case might be. That there's a futility in that way of living, Psalm 49 reminds us. And it's, to be clear, it's not to say that abundance or possessions or wealth or affluence is bad in and of itself. It's not to say that if you have been blessed or gifted in any sort of way with financial resources, that is evil and sinful. No, that's not what this psalm is saying. This psalm is saying that when we allow those things to be the controlling kind of force or feature of our lives, when we place all meaning and significance into the here and now with what we have, that creates this snare and this trap that closes us off to the purposes of God and who, what God wants for us. Remember what Jesus said that essentially one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That there's actually more to live for. There's a way to live. There's a, the actual good life that does not close oneself off from God, but is actually free from the grip of those things, even if they might be good. That's why I love what Tim Keller says about this psalm. He says this, Only God can give you things of value that death cannot touch but only enhance. But there's something more to live for. But take a look at verse 10. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations 
though they called lands by their own names. Isn't that kind of a haunting line at the end of verse 11? Though they had all of the prestige and the fame in this life, that's all they were living for. Verse 12, man in his pomp. Go ahead and underline that if that's, if you kind of like to underline, we're going to talk about that. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. And if you notice in your Bible, you probably have a little word at the end of verse 13, selah. It's a word that maybe most of you are familiar with that simply means something to the effect of slow down or pause or take a break. It's a way to remind us as readers that we shouldn't just sort of speed read through something like this. That we should take time to reflect and meditate and ponder what exactly is Psalm 49 and up until this point, this section, inviting us to consider, inviting us to meditate on. And that's what I want to do is actually just kind of slow down here. And let's talk about some of these verses, in particular this idea in verse 12, man in his pomp is like the beast that perish. If you skim down to the very end of this psalm, verse 20, it's almost verbatim, the same line appears again. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. What is this idea of pomp? It's a word that's not completely foreign, but it's not a word that I at least use on an everyday basis. Pomp is a word, at least in the scriptural narrative, a word that can be translated as honor or prestige or even vanity. It's a word that kind of communicates the tendency that we have as humans to put up a facade and to allow our lives to be determined by the external and the here and now. Again, that pressure to live life in that imminent frame, the closed roof, where all my significance and all my worth is placed in the here and now. That, that's pomp. Pomp is this way of living that says the most important thing is what that person thinks about me. Pomp is a way of living that cares more about my external appearance, how I look, and spends all this time caring about that and not so much time in prayer before the Lord. Pomp is living a life that exudes all of this confidence, yet in reality lays awake at night full of worry and anxiety because you wonder, where is my actual worth found? Pomp is chasing circumstance and experience after experience to furnish the empty room of our own souls. See, pomp is a way of living within that imminent frame, a closed roof sort of reality that is not open to the life that is truly life, the actual good life that is actually set free for living a life that does have meaning and significance because God is at the center. I was reminded this past week of a, a little book called, well, the subtitle is what always gets me, Leaving the Emptiness of False Attractions. And in this little book, the author talks what he calls the 10 empty Ps. And it really, I think, connects to what this psalm is talking about. 10 empty Ps. It's kind of cheesy. It's way too long of a sermon outline, so don't worry, I'm not going to preach through all 10 right now. But I actually find it incredibly helpful. Here they are, pleasure, I think they're on the screen behind me. Pleasure, praise, power, prestige, position, popularity, people, productivity, 
possessions, and perfection. Because we're talking about pomp as well, there's, there's 11 for you. What are, what are these? These are ways, apart from Christ as our foundation, these are ways of living life where all meaning and significance is just crammed into the here and now. These are ways, if we're honest, where this pompous way of living, where we're tempted to, to find meaning and significance in the external, in the present, in the temporal. These are ways that, if we're not careful, they can easily become, I find in my own life, like if I'm not like in tune with the presence of God and continuing this mode of repentance and, and confession and, and, and faith, that it creates sort of this like subtle, yet also strong grip on my own soul. Where I'm no longer thinking and meditating and setting my mind on things above. And just so focused then on the here and now. You know, how this looks in my life, let me just name something that's happening right now in this moment in this room for me. See, I'm up here, obviously, and there is a huge part of me that honestly wants to preach and to teach and to share God's word in a way that is motivated by self-giving love, where I want you to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. I want you to see the power of God's word and experience the power of God's spirit transforming you to become more and more conformed in the image of Jesus. And there's a part of me that wants you to think I'm doing a good job right now. There's a part of me that has some motivations that are rooted in performance or pleasure. What is that? That's a vain attempt to live the good life with this closed roof mentality, just cramming all meaning and significance into the here and now. That's a, to use the language of Psalm 49, a pompous way to live, a meaningless way to live. But friends, don't you see how Psalm 49 is ever so gently encouraging us and prodding us and even, may I say, challenging us to see that there's actually a better way to live in this life, there's a better version of the good life on off offer. Because what happens is if we allow these things to be the things of the here and now, to be what controls and what becomes the everyday worries and cares of this world, to be the animating thing that drives us, what this ends up doing is it has this side effect where we then begin to care about things that we should be caring about less and less. We begin to care about others less than we should. We begin to care about serving less than we should because we're caring about something else that ultimately will not satisfy. Very simple diagnostic question to kind of evaluate this that if I found helpful is simply asking this one particular question. How much do I care about the things I care about? How much do I care about the things I care about? And going before the Lord, going before the Spirit, and just inviting his voice to speak into that. To poke and to prod and to gently bring us to a place of recognition 
that you know what, friends? There is something more to live for. There is something better to live for. One author says it like this. We've been consumed by things that feed the ego but starve the soul. And that's why we need to hear Psalm 49 say to us, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Tim and Kathy Keller in their devotional on this particular psalm say this, Lord, I often catch myself imagining how much greater life would be if I had more. I also quietly boast in my heart when I see myself able to afford certain goods and inhabit certain places. Save my heart from such shallowness and foolishness. The psalm goes on though, verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, there's our phrase again, yet without understanding is like the beasts that perish. I want you to notice verse 16, the directive that the psalmist gives us, be not afraid. It's actually an echo back to verse 5. So twice within this psalm, we have this phrase, man in his pomp is like the beast that perish. But also twice within this psalm, we have this directive and this invitation to not fear or be not afraid. I think this is really significant. Another moment to ponder and slow down. Because let me ask you this. What is the scariest thing you've experienced in your life? What is the most the thing that you're most afraid of. I can tell you one of the scariest moments in my life was a few years ago in the middle of the night, sleeping or trying to sleep. And I'm basically fully asleep, but I kind of, kind of in and out and I'm hearing like someone's walking in our house in the middle of the night, one or two in the morning. And I'm just, you know, really tired. So I'm not, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm just trying to sleep in that moment. And all of a sudden, I can kind of sense, you know, you can kind of sense this sometimes when you're sleeping. I can sense that there's someone standing right next to me as I'm sleeping. And I open my eyes, and it's, it's my four-year-old son, Kaysen. And it's at that, he, he's, so I'm, I'm laying down, and Kaysen's, like, you know, he's at that age where he's basically, his head is right at my head's level. And I was just completely terrified. <laughs> and all Kaysen says back to me is, my blankies are all crumply. <laughs> and that was... And if you've ever been there in that moment, it is frightening having someone just this shadowy figure, even though he's my cute son, right there. And I say that Because that type of fear is something that goes away. It's like, oh, it's a funny moment now. It goes away. There's another type of fear, though, 
that kind of just resides and remains, and it's really hard for it to go away. I would submit to you that Psalm 49 is pointing us to that type of fear, the fear where we cram so much meaning and significance into the here and now that it leads us to this place of wondering, am I enough? Is this enough? Will I ever be good enough? And the psalmist is saying, do not fear. Don't go down that path. I have wisdom for you, the psalmist is saying, that there's actually a better way to live. And why can the psalmist say that? Why does the psalmist say that? Well, just look at one verse prior in verse 15. But God, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. In those first two words of verse 15, I think, but God, two of the most important and gospel-filled words in all of Scripture. Because if we're honest, friends, it's so easy to just live life for the here and now. But God. It's so easy to see my worth and my identity and how much I have or how much I can accumulate and what I can perform, but God. It's so easy to seek affluence and prestige and recognition in just the here and now and to allow that to control my narrative and my being, but God. See, the psalmist is saying the invitation to the life that is truly life is because of this but God. And what is the psalmist highlighting specifically about God? That God has the power to ransom my life from the power of Sheol. You know, at the very beginning of this sermon, I mentioned that this psalm and the ones before it were written by the sons of Korah. Who are the sons of Korah? They're actually, Korah in particular, goes all the way back to number 16. And in number 16, Korah and a couple of his friends, kind of to summarize real quick, they have this rebellious moment against Moses. And essentially, at, in number 16, it's this gnarly story where essentially the ground opens up and eats Korah and his buddies. It's like that Sarlacc, Sarlacc monster in Star Wars, right? Just sucks them up. But in number 16, the text tells us that Korah succumbs to the power of Sheol. And I find it interesting that not just here in verse 15, but if you go back up one more verse in verse 14, Sheol is mentioned over and over and over again. And so generations later, the sons of Korah, I think, reflecting back on their own family history, recognize that the God that they serve has power over even Sheol. That the final word in their story is not just the here and now. The final word in their story is not the grave, is not death, but is in the God who has power over death. Because Sheol, friends, remember, is, is just simply a Hebrew word for the grave or the pit. And the psalmist here in Psalm 49, the sons of Korah, recognize that their story, that their significance is not ultimately tied to their own family story. It's not ultimately tied to what happened in their past or what they did or did not do, but is ultimately defined by 
the transcendent God who does have power over the grave, has power over Sheol. And the psalmist here recognizes this. But how much more for us? Again, verse 15, but God will ransom, redeem, purchase, revive my life from the power of Sheol. Did not the Lord Jesus Christ say himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and what? Give his life as a ransom for many. See, friends, what can free us from the fear of just living a life that's so just stuck with the here and now, finding all significance and purpose in possessions and abundance and wealth and affluence and all those MTPs? What has the power to ultimately free us from that way of living? To free us to live the life that is truly life in the language of Jesus. May I submit to you, it's a recognition and a reception by faith, a trust in the fact that our God, who we should not close off but has entered into human history, died for our sins and has defeated the grave, has defeated death. And friends, when you remember this, when you reflect on this, when you trust in this gospel, in this good news, you know what this does for you? This frees you from having to live this life where you put all of this pressure on yourself and even on others to find significance and worth and value in what you have or what you don't have and who you are or who you're not in all of the things of the temple. It frees you to live more lightly with a less of a grip on the things of this world with a levity and a joy and a delight. Were you not closing yourself off from the God who is above and the God who is also near and present to you? But you recognize that God in the person of Jesus has defeated death. And the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is at, alive and at work in you, Christian, this morning, inviting you, encouraging you, or even challenging you to say, whose version of the good life are you really trusting? Whose version of the good life are you really trusting? The good news of the gospel, friends, is that it frees us to live a different kind of life. So Father, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for Psalm 49. And that how you speak so clearly and yet so gently to us. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to worship you through song, that you would, you would continue to do that work of renewal, continue to do that work of just helping us to delight in the things of you. Where the things of this world would fade in comparison with the beauty and the goodness of who you are, Jesus. So Spirit, would you please move in and through each of us, move through me, move through your people, free us to live the life that is truly life. It's in your name we pray, amen.